Chapter One of Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne, January twenty third, two thousand ten. Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study by Charles Edward Jefferson. Chapter One. Wherefore all this? Please let me shut the door. We are here alone, brethren and we want no eavesdroppers. Human ears are sensitive, and if we do not speak in quiet tones, I fear the laity may come flying as doves to our windows. It is characteristic of human nature to be interested in what is intended for somebody else. A short time ago I invited into my study a company of laymen that we might have a confidential chat concerning certain matters relating especially to the people in the pews. But before the evening was far advanced, my invited guests were crowded completely into a corner by the throng of ministers who came rushing in. I had spoken only briefly when a minister began suggesting things which laymen ought to hear, and when at last my talk was finished the most robust amen which reached my ears came from the approving throat of a clergyman. I fear, therefore, that should our present meeting be noised abroad it would be necessary to adjourn from the study to the church auditorium and possibly to the public square, for nothing so stirs the curiosity of laymen as the things which ministers discuss in secret. I have long wished, brethren, to talk over with you certain things which are so delicate in their nature one hesitates to mention them, but which are of so great importance to us clergymen and to the church universal that silence concerning them cannot be commended. What I shall say is not said as criticism, but rather as suggestion and admonition. Some of you have written to me, others of you have come to see me from time to time concerning perplexities in your work, and there are other things no doubt on your mind which you have not yet had opportunity to mention. In order that we might have a good, confidential talk together about these things of moment to us all, I have opened wide my study door and asked you to come in. You are all, I see, younger men than I am, and therefore I can speak with greater plainness and fuller freedom. But however frank and bold my utterance, brethren, not one syllable shall be spoken to hurt, but every syllable to help. I am not a sour-eyed censor of ministerial morality, nor do I wish to swell the chorus of that hoarse-voiced company just now shouting the minister's dispraise. I have no sympathy with the men who persist in the affirmation that most ministers preach what they do not believe, nor do I accept the dictum laid down with gravity by sneering judges, that if preachers could only preach a little all the churches would be filled. The stormy lamentations of those who would make seminaries hopelessly antiquated institutions, and most recent graduates anointed numbskulls, are in my judgment sound and fury signifying nothing but a man with open eyes cannot fail to see that in the ecclesiastical world, as in every other, there are stumblings and failings and fallings, and if his heart be sympathetic he cannot but wish to help his brethren avoid the pitfalls into which some have fallen and safeguard them from forms of conduct which weaken and offend. Ministers as a body are, I think, the best men living on the earth. I could fill a dozen evenings with praises of the pulpit saints whom I have known. In purity of motive ministers as a class surpass the lawyers, in breadth of sympathy the physicians, in fidelity to principle the editors, 
in self-sacrifice the merchants, in moral courage the soldiers, in loftiness of ideals the teachers, in purity of life the highest classes in our best society. This is not said boastfully, but gratefully, as a fact not to be disputed. But ministers, to be as good as other classes of men, must be better than they. No other set of men make such assumptions or bind themselves to such high ideals. A lawyer, when admitted to the bar, does not promise to obey the Ten Commandments. A physician, on receiving his diploma, does not agree to practice the Sermon on the Mount. Being an editor involves no assumption of fidelity to gospel principles, and merchants do not enter business announcing to the world their purpose to give their life a ransom for others. If, therefore, both in spirit and conduct ministers as a body were not superior to every other class of men, they would be a disgrace to their profession and a scandal to the world. While all men, no matter what their calling, are under the eternal law of God, and therefore morally bound to keep the Ten Commandments, and to live in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount, yet as clergymen are the only men who voluntarily confess these obligations and give their life to the work of making them real to other men, it follows that more may rightfully be expected of them than from any other tribe of workers in our modern Israel. Much is rightfully expected, and much also is received. To be sure, there is a scapegrace here and there, and of not a few clerical workmen there is abundant reason to be ashamed. But in a world like this, universal piety and wisdom among the professed servants of religion is as impossible today as it was when Jesus chose his dozen men of whom one was Judas. Taking the clerical body as a whole, it is made up of honest, capable, faithful men. But a man may be all this, and still fail. There are infirmities of temper and infelicities of conduct which, while hardly falling into the category of sins, are none the less so disastrous in their effects on spiritual life as to be worthy of a place among those evils from whom one should pray to be delivered. Ministers, with rare exceptions, are neither rogues nor hypocrites, but being human they are capable of all sorts of distorted action, and the very nature of their work exposes them to a multitude of dangers from which other men are on the whole exempt. Many a man in the ministry fails, not because he is bad, but because he has a genius for blundering. Men with ability sufficient to carry them to distinction fail to rise, because of foibles and oddities which they seem unable to shake off. Oh, if he would quit that! How frequently that doleful exclamation has fallen from the lips of the despairing saints! Even slight defects in clergymen are momentous because they live always in a light as searching and intense as that which beats upon a throne. What other man in the community makes such constant self-disclosures as the minister? His eyes, lips, teeth, facial expression, voice, mind, heart, moods, all these are subject to public scrutiny. Whatever is crooked or unchristian in him is certain to come out. The scripture says the saints shall judge the world. It is their special province and delight to judge those who minister to them in spiritual things. Since this is so, there is reason, brethren, why we, of all men, should walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. End of chapter 1